My name is Caroline Bush and I'm an environmental lawyer at Osborne Clark. The podcast you're about to hear is a joint event with Osborne Clark and Peer 150. We were joined for the session also by Brian Kelly, who is the deputy GC of DocuSign. The event was held virtually on the 29th of July, 2021. During the event, we focused on ESG for international businesses and in particular, the role of the GC. This podcast covers some of the key discussion points of the session. I hope you enjoy it. It's a real pleasure to be joining you from uh, the City of London today. Um, it's uh, it's great to see some some faces, some familiar faces, and uh, I hope you enjoy the session today. Um, my name is James Watson, and I'm a I'm a partner in in the London team here. I lead our international uh, decarbonisation practice at, at Osborne Clark, and uh, what that really involves is uh, is pulling together a whole load of sort of people across a number of disciplines, from regulatory, compliance, litigators, corporate, uh, to provide legal services, products, consulting around many items of the net zero agenda but most excitingly i think for us and most topically for us uh, the whole esg agenda um and we'll talk a bit more about that in the in the in the group session we're about to go into um i, I think just uh, three things to start with before i get the others to introduce themselves when we speak to gc's senior legal executives in our big listed corporate clients or big financial institutions or in other businesses. There are definitely three areas which uh, they are concerned about. One, they um, they have more than one day job. The CSOs, uh, the, the legal people who support the CSOs, they've got a lot of other things to do than just look after ESG and getting that balance is really difficult. So I hope today can offer some clarity around that. The second uh, thing that really um, excites them is trying to stay on top of all of the the law, the regulation around ESG, the news stories, what's important to them, what do I need to read? There's too much there. So again, triaging that and coming to a few things that they should be focusing on. And then finally, how can I make sure the legal role in, in the business is at the center of our ESG strategy, helping gather the data helping to uh, to make the right corporate decision, um, whether that's internally on processes or with our investors and, and others uh, in the business. So it's really topical. We're delighted to be here to support the session. I'll quickly introduce my other two uh, colleagues who are going to help today. Uh, Caroline, are you all right to quickly introduce yourself? Yes, of course. And thanks very much, James. Uh, just to echo what James said, it's absolutely lovely to be here with you um, this afternoon for us. Morning for you. So uh, good morning. Um, I'm a senior associate in Osborne Clark's environment team. Um, so look a lot at um, kind of environmental regulation, which is obviously a key part of ESG. Um, another hat I wear is as a co-lead of uh, what we call Tackling the Carbon Challenge, and that's the stream which focuses on policy and regulation within uh, the decarbonisation trend that James has already mentioned. So in a nutshell, what I do there is work with clients to help them tackle what we call the carbon challenge. Um, for example, that might be discussing their approach to ESG or considering the impact of net zero targets on their business. And I think it's just amazing to have this conversation now, you know, two years ago. Um, I just don't know if there'd have been the interest. And I think for, for me, certainly, um, just seeing how this is, has, has shot up the corporate agenda is, is fascinating. And I'm really looking forward to, to sharing some of those um, stories and hearing from you as well what, what, what you're seeing. So thank you very much. 
Matt, over to you. Quick intro. Yeah, hi. Good morning, everyone. My name is Matt Germain. I'm a partner at Osborne Clark in the UK. I head up our environment and sustainability team, work very closely with Caroline. Um, my practice is advising clients on all aspects of environmental law, increasingly around sustainability, the E of ESG uh, and climate change. Uh, and uh, yeah, I also head up within our, within Osborne Clark our own uh, sustainability function. So looking at our own sustainability performance as a law firm and as a business. Brian, uh, over to you. All right. Uh, morning or good afternoon in this case, maybe. Uh, Brian Kelly, Deputy General Counsel of DocuSign, uh, I, where I oversee our corporate and securities employment and litigation functions. So in my role, I interact pretty heavily with our board of directors and senior management on a range of corporate governance and policy issues. Um, I work closely with our finance, IR, HR, and sustainability teams. Uh, on a whole range of operational and disclosure issues affecting our company uh, and have had a kind of frontline seat um, in the last year to two years in particular where, uh, as DocuSign has navigated through this kind of shifting ESG landscape uh, and very much look forward to uh, being part of this discussion. Great stuff. Well, without further ado, Brad, if that's all right, we'll, we'll, we'll get started with the, uh, the sort of Q&A session. And um, uh, yeah, thanks, Brad. And I think um, what we're keen for this session to be is, is a really practical session, bringing out some real kind of practical insights for people to, to get a hold of. So, Brian, if it's all right, I'll, I'll kind of just reach straight back to you, if that's OK. I mean, DocuSign, obviously, massive uh, global business. As you say, you've been at the center of a lot of the, the kind of challenging strategic decisions around ESG. I mean, what do you consider to be the sort of biggest source of increased attention on ESG topics for DocuSign? Who's driving the agenda, really? Is it is it the investors? Is it the customers, employees, other stakeholders? Who's really, you know, pushing it hardest? Yeah, in terms of, um, you know, pressure groups, right, or sources of pressure without which, you know, not much new is going to get added to the corporate agenda. If we had to rank it from my perspective, it's going to be, investors, our own employees, uh, and then commercial third parties, right? Customers um, that we're dealing with. And for us, I think that the investor perspective is the one that's really become the most kind of salient and prominent over the last year or so. Uh, whereas you might've had, for example, a stockholder engagement season in which, you know, we typically meet with five, six, seven investors in a given year. One out of two perhaps might bring up uh, ESG as a relatively minor topic as part of those discussions. This past season, you know, five out of five for us uh, focused on ESG as a topic, and in many cases, allocating as much airtime to it uh, as any other topic, more time than we're spending talking about executive compensation, for example. Um, so the kind of meteoric rise in prominence from an investor perspective, investor perspective, and the, the amount of attention that's being applied to this um, has really been the most kind of single obvious shift but not the only one. Um, and I'd say from a uh, employee relations and recruiting perspective, uh, particularly for a tech company like us, where we're in a very competitive marketplace for talent, uh, not being perceived as a laggard, but as leader when it comes to um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, having a um, you know, compelling strategy and a story to tell when it comes to employee diversity is increasingly important you know, for our own internal constituents, our employees and the candidates that we're going out and trying to recruit. 
Um, and then lastly, I had mentioned customers. And I think this is one area where getting input and kind of viewpoints from this group is going to be interesting for us. Um, you know, not just not only there, but most prominently in Europe for us, we're seeing uh, increasing customer focus on sustainability scoring as um, effectively the price of entry uh, for being a vendor and, and serving those customers. And the question for us gets to be, well, how do we manage um, dueling standards, rating systems that our customers may want to employ? And how do we kind of operationalize that and make it sustainable for DocuSign as companies? So we're not uh, doing the kind of whack-a-mole exercise of responding to you know, numerous complex uh, rating submissions. Um, so navigating that is, is probably third in line for us, given you know, our businesses, US-centric still, um, but expanding globally. Uh, and we're certainly running into more of that in the EU. Great. Thanks, Brian. And I think, Matt, just coming to you, it's a, it's an interesting point Brian raises there. It's that sort of globalization of standards and uh, a desire to get some, some commonality. Um, there does feel to me like there's a little bit of a battle of the acronyms when you come to the various rating standards, the, you know, the, the validation standards that the market offers now uh, with MSCI, SASB, GRI, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, my concern has been when speaking to some of our corporate clients that, you know, there'd be some kind of regulatory arbitrage and rather than having this really high level set of standards, which everyone can aspire to be the best they can be around the ES and G. Uh, it, it's a bit of a race to the bottom and you're going to get soft standards being uh, deployed by companies who have quite a lot to do. Uh, you know, DocuSign's at that front end of, of high quality, but there are others, laggards, as Brian said, you know, who are, who are not perhaps as on the money as they should be. Do you have a, do you have a view on that, Matt? Yeah, no, I, I, it's a really good point, actually, James. And I think, I think what is going to happen as, which is already beginning now, the kind of conclusions of ESG raters, the impact that now has on the valuation of an organization as that is now shot up in terms of how significant that is, it is inevitable <clears throat> that there's going to be some regulation brought in in various jurisdictions around some uniformity around the raters. Um, uh, there's already been some I know a lot of discussion around who pays for it is one point as well. Um, but I think, you know, if you, if you, it's a bit like the, the, the voluntary carbon market for offsetting at the moment that that doesn't have any regulation, but that's because it's sort of operated a little bit in the shadows for many years now with organizations bringing in net zero policies, carbon offsetting is now becoming increasingly more significant. So, and that is about to, you know, introduce some, some, some regulatory standards. So I think I think we will see that. I think in, t in time to come, we will see a hardening because otherwise there's going to be too much variance and too much, you know, for, if you think about an organization that's getting ready to list or getting ready to, uh, you know, to, to, to do a fundraising or even to, you know, part of an M&A process, the ESG valuation is going to go, you know, like an EBITDA and therefore, it's going to be imperative that the rating is consistent. Um, and, and just to pick on what Brian said, in terms of looking at that ranking in the, you know, coming from the kind of EMEA perspective, I think I, I would agree with that. The one I think in the, in the, looking at the UK, I think the customer significance pressure, certainly around the E of ESG, uh, you know, in the UK is growing more and more. And what we're seeing, and we're seeing it within Osborne Clark as we're pitching for work with clients, 
is that customers are driving a pretty hard position on mandate on, on requiring through our RFPs that you know an organization has a certain level of performance on carbon and um, you only have to look at our own government UK government is now bringing in a, a change to its public procurement laws that in, in order to do business with the with the with the government you have to be matching that their, their own net zero ambitions um, so I, th I think I think the customer perspective in certain jurisdictions is moving a bit quicker, certainly on the environmental side. Just want to bring Caroline into the conversation a little bit and take take the conversation in a slightly different direction. I mean, ESG and today's topic, um, the E in ESG is 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 relating obviously to decarbonisation, climate change, the move to net zero. You know, what what are other you know, key parts of the E beyond just purely keeping your stakeholders and your, your investor base ha happy, you know, which companies uh, need to pay attention to and particularly perhaps, you know, the issues that affect in-house counsel within within the companies who need to look over those issues. Do you have a, a view on that, Caroline? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I think it's quite easy sometimes to kind of forget about the other the other bits of the E, if you will, um, because obviously goes without saying decarbonisation and climate change are massively important overarching elements of, co of course as well but I think there are others that companies may also want to consider and I think both from a compliance and potentially an opportunity perspective um, so if the ecosystems for example you know we all we all work in an environment um, and, and what the impacts of your business might be on the environment be it biodiversity habitats maybe wildlife a good example is maybe you use raw materials, which have issues of scarcity, for example. And I think the interesting thing there is, is you know, can you set yourself apart potentially from your peers by saying, by, by actually going out there and, and being innovative and, and considering, and I'm sure everyone in this, in this webinar is probably doing this already, but I just think it's something that's it's important to consider as, as part of this decarbonization and climate change uh, kind of movement that we're all engaged with. Um, Another potential opportunity really is if there are local biodiversity initiatives, for example, locally that you can get engaged with. And I think that kind of local community um, forward facing role that actually some of, you know, some of these, some, some businesses can take can also be a really, really positive step from a PR perspective as well. Um, potentially, you know, you're a business with a little bit of a spare piece of land which you could make into a wildflower meadow or something like that so I think there's lots of um, lots of opportunities there and I guess another element um, which does you know th these are all interrelated and I think I guess I should say that you know the, the, all of these things are so interrelated but products as well um, you know company anything products your company use um, or produce how can you ensure they are as environmentally friendly as possible? For example, can they be reused, recycled? Um, what's the full life cycle of the product? And I know that the kind of circular economy question is something that's been um, it's been around for a very long time, um, but obviously as part of this whole agenda that's that's stepping up a gear, I think, in interest. And then linked to that really resource efficiency. And um, these all fall under that, that E. Um, and I think, as I say, they're the kind of, I guess, the slightly more granular elements of decarbonization and climate change. Um, but you know the resources. It, we, we often talk, and so I'm sure you're familiar with the terms. Um, certainly in the UK, with scopes one, two, and three emissions. And I think what's been really interesting as well recently is we've 
there's been a lot of focus on the electricity usage, your direct um, emissions. But I think what we're seeing now is that there's a real interest actually in what, what we call scope three emissions, which are those that are potentially indirect. So what is there in your supply chain, both upstream and downstream, um, which is also very resource, resource hungry, for example, um, and what are the opportunities to reduce them? So yeah, I don't want to add to the to-do list of, of the people on the call, because we've already heard um, there's an awful lot to look at and to consider. But I think all of those things, um, if we're going to take a truly holistic view of the E of ESG, um, have got to be on there. Um, so that's that that was, I guess, my, my key thoughts on that. Yeah, and I think I think that's a, a good point. You know, I want to tie this into the audience today and to that practical perspective. Um, you know, as as you say, there's there's a lot of ground to cover on the E, the S, and the G. Matt, um, you know, in terms of building a strategy for in-house council uh, to adopt, to to make them good in front of their C-suite, to you know, to to give them the tools they need to own some of these topics. You know, do you have some tips for the people on this call to to what are, what are the things should they be focusing on? And then we'll get an in-house perspective in a minute from Brian. See if yeah. he agrees. <laughs> yeah, hopefully, hopefully Brian will agree. With me. I, I think I think the first point I would make is in-house council need to be involved. I think that's the first thing. I don't I don't think it, I, I think you almost frame the frame the question in that way. So I, I think in that sense, in-house council got a massive role to play in ESG within an organisation. I think they can add a huge amount of value, actually beyond just a purely legal um, input. Actually, um, but I think in our experience, where we've seen other clients make this work in terms of de delivering a successful and compelling ESG strategy because as, as, as Brian says these things are for the long term right so you've got to whatever you do ha has got to be authentic and is going to be around for a long time so I think ultimately what, what the key ingredient is around governance and making sure that whatever you do is properly embedded within the structure the governance structure of your organization and where that seems to work best is that it actually has the kind of exco um, whatever you want to call it board senior leadership team that it's embedded at that level of the organization and there is board level sponsorship of esg i think that's where it, i think that's where it has to begin and i think that's where in-house council can can really drive this by making sure because i think as lawyers one of the things that we're good at is, is, is process and structure and governance. And I think we can help executives within organizations to embed that kind of governance structure. And then what flows out of that, um, you know, th there are different processes, but certainly we've seen, um, you know, specific ESG committees working very well and working groups that take certain uh, responsibilities. But crucially, um, you know, you, you, you talked about the legal function, James, for it to really work well of an organization of scale, it also needs somebody who is, you know, dedicated to this on a day-to-day -day basis. So some sort of ESG officer or sustainability manager, chief sustainability officer, I think is also really important to work alongside the legal team in making sure that this sort of strategy is delivered. Because I think just to close on what I was going to say, embedding an ESG strategy is a change management process in my view you are you are fundamentally in many cases changing how an organization works how it views its people how it views its communities how it views the environment around it and its impact and therefore there's a lot of change so therefore you do you know you do need some quite significant governance structure around that uh, in order to really do that effectively yeah I think that's that's a, that's a great answer and yeah process management 
staying on top of it, being able to audit effectively to come up with, um, you know, the data to back up the processes that have been put in place. A lot of that, you know, well, some of that has been ceded to the, the accountants and the audit firms, but actually a lot of it is in validating legal risk. And I, and I think that's where, you know, we have a significant role as lawyers, whether in-house or in private practice to support this, uh, this journey. Brian, did you, uh, did you want to respond there? Was, did that broadly resonate with, with the DocuSign experience? Yeah, very much so. I think from an in-house practitioner's perspective, you know, if you're asking what's the role of in-house counsel here, what value can we add as attorneys? Um, you know, really, I think first thing that comes to mind for me uh, is really acting as the, the connective tissue between your board on the one hand and senior management on the other. Um, and the second would be, and, and Matt had kind of raised this point as well, that, you know, we may not be subject matter experts, right? And in a position, for example, to advise the corporation on how we're going to optimize employee travel and related carbon emission issues or to identify our roadmap for uh, offsetting that um, we, you know, with carbon offset purchases or otherwise may not be experts on subject matter, right? But as attorneys, we are kind of the kings and queens of process. And so we can still uh, raise the substantive questions and organize uh, our, our approach to answering them, right? And most fundamentally, it's about you know, what's our governance structure for sustainability as a company, number one. And number two, is that appropriate for us given our ESG risk profile? And lawyers are, you know, if we're not qualified to fill in every answer to those questions, we're at least uh, eminently qualified to organize the effort and start the conversation. I, I, I completely agree. And, you know, we've been doing some kind of deep dive sessions with some of our large corporate you know, clients, um, you can actually be quite surprised about things that have been missed. Um, you know, no one, no one's kind of on top of every single bit of detail. Everyone's trying to do the right thing, get the right processes in place, follow the right legal outputs, uh, etc. But it's so fast moving, and there's so much volume there. Inevitably, bits will be missed, and I think part of the role of the lawyer is to do that red flag, that risk review and to, to see where the gaps might be and to look forward and think, what, what, is, the, what is the damage to the, to the business if we don't get on top of the bits we might have missed rather than just pushing the bits that we've, we've kind of got? Because that, that can be kind of passed then on into the business to manage because you've set the process up. So I think it's that kind of horizon scanning, what's coming down the pipes, what do we need to be aware of uh, and to advise you know, the, the, the non-legal experts as to how the process is built around that. Um, Matt, just, just coming back to you, um, I just thought it would be useful for this community. I mean, we are obviously a law firm, but um, we are also a corporate in our own right. And um, I often find it frustrating that, uh, you know, outside lawyers sort of preach to, uh, to our clients in-house about how they should do this, that, and the other, and so on. Brian, in the, in the US, I mean, should should in-house counsel have their kind of ears open to, you know, the, the the threat of that sort of action being taken against a corporation? Is it restricted in in the US, or is it effectively open season, like it sounds like it is in the Netherlands? I mean, what's the role of in-house counsel in protecting businesses from, uh, you know, action against their own 
uh, ESG behaviors um, and, and climate litigation is presumably on the rise in the US as much as it is in Europe and, and elsewhere. Yeah, I think, James, it gets back to uh, that kind of fundamental question of what is the ESG risk profile of the business? Um, in our case, we're a SaaS software company. Uh, we're not engaged in extractive industries. There's no tangible product we manufacture. Our supply chains are relatively straightforward in some ways. You know, that's not to downplay the real resources that we do consume uh, in the form of our data centers, which are big electricity users, for example. Um, but we're different, differently situated, you know, fundamentally from a company like uh, a Shell to Caroline's example. Um, and yeah, I have no expectation we're going to get hauled in front of a Dutch court anytime soon. Um, for DocuSign, I can say, you know, our perspective on this is, uh, you know, fundamentally to our business is um, we replace paper-based processes with electronic ones. It's what we do. Um, and we've partnered with um, firms that have helped uh, us kind of run the numbers on this. We estimate right around 20 billion sheets of paper saved, 2.5 million trees, 2.5 billion gallons of water, 2 million pounds of CO2. In terms of the environmental impact we enable for, for our customers, right? not inherent in our own operations, which again, this is a SaaS software company or it's a pretty small environmental footprint at the end of the day, but our indirect impact through our customers uh, is something we take seriously. We think it's the biggest ESG story we have to tell at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, and the risk for us is actually um, kind of the inverse of what you had described, James, uh, where occasionally, you know, I'd say to any peer, uh, particularly in the SaaS space, if, if you're looking to make an environmental case based on the impact that you enable for your customers, um, you know, be confident that you've engaged with the data, that you've scrutinized it carefully, um, because what you may find is pushback from some entrenched um, industries and lobbies, for example, um, big paper may well decide to come after you and raise allegations of greenwashing. Uh, and this gets back, you know, Matt had raised the point about uh, authenticity. Uh, authenticity, greenwashing allegations, they're... Uh, sides or facets of a related issue, right? Which is how deeply committed are you um, to your sustainability program? How robust is the data that you're relying upon? So if anything, James, our, our risk profile is not an NGO comes after us uh, based on our environmental impact. Um, you know, certainly we care about the impact of our data centers. We're taking steps to mitigate it. Uh, it's rather that, um, you know, do you, do you go a step too far? Um, and can you get, land yourself in hot water by making claims about environment impact that are not supported by the data? I, I completely agree, and I, I and I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Brian. Part part of the challenge as a corporation is setting standards you can stick to. Now, what's your top tip to the legal community on this call around ESG and what they should be doing within their businesses? My top tip: unashamedly look at what your competition are doing. Look at the policies and procedures they've listed on there websites there's loads of stuff that you can plagiarize maybe i shouldn't say that and uh build if you it, it, lots of businesses are on that far right hand side massively advanced all over this many businesses aren't you can learn a lot from copying what other people are doing so that would be my top tip brian what's your top tip yeah i was gonna cheat uh and lob into it but first um you know, would be to uh, set a, a realistic goal around uh, ESG priorities that you're really 
um, that are meaningful to the business and you have a, a realistic shot of making a meaningful impact uh, over the next three, four, five years. Uh, if you look at, um, and I'll drop this into the chat in a, in a moment, you know, PwC did one of these grids, there are many others defining um, potential topics or areas of action across environmental, social, and govern governance dimensions of an ESG campaign, right? Maybe 30 items on that list. Uh, if you attempt to tackle each and every one of those things, you're going to get pulled in too many directions. You're going to fritter away, fritter away management time and attention, and you're not going to come away with anything that's particularly impressive to any of your, of your stakeholders, right? So organize the effort now to at least identify what are the four or five, six things we're really going to target here. Um, and that's going to have, I think, more of an impact. Uh, it's going to set your board's minds at ease on this issue. Uh, in terms of building their confidence in management strategy for, for tackling ESG. Great. Um, and the second would be stockholder engagement. Early, often, and just count on this being an issue uh, on the table each and every time that you're engaging with your stockholders uh, from here on out. Good. You can have two top tips because you're, you're DocuSign. <laughs> right. Who's next? Caroline, top yep, tip. Yeah, okay. Because otherwise Matt might steal mine. Um, yeah. uh, the, the thing that springs to my mind is bringing everyone in your company along with you. Um, and I just think that's, um, you know, you've got, and also open that up to them. Maybe there's someone there who's got the best idea that you've never even thought of. And I think, you know, to Matt's point about Gen Z and um, being really engaged in this topic and even, you know, whatever's after Gen Z, I always forget that. But, you know, it's the young, many of the youth of today have kind of grown up. Um, and I can say that because I'm not one of them anymore. It's sad, but but have grown up with this, and, and they're very very sophisticated actually. So I think it's um, I think absolutely the board is the one that's ultimately going to make decisions. But I think engaging with your with your employees, we've already talked about how important they are on this agenda. Um, I think is really important taking them along for the ride. And and I guess it's one of those areas that if everyone makes a small step, it's just, it's a slightly trite thing to say. But if everyone makes a small change within your business, then actually that could have a great impact on your electricity usage for some for example some, something as simple as that or or changing the ways they travel to work um so i think actually that we you know employee engagement as well i think is is one thing that i think is a is, is a potentially an easy easier win than some um but could actually have quite a quite a disproportionately significant effect great thank you very much last but by no means least matt um, germain what is your uh, top tip trying to keep it very practical if i was a gc i would put an hour in my diary uh tomorrow or next week and i would write on a slide deck three or four slides of what value my legal team can bring on esg to this or to the organization within i work, within which i work and write it down and document it and that should be the beginning of a kind of plan to make sure that your legal team or you if you're if it's just you are at the heart of what ESG is in your organization. Don't, don't let it pass you by and it be things that other people do within your organization. Make sure the, the legal team are in the middle of it. Great stuff. Well, thanks, Brad, for giving the four of us the opportunity to talk to this great group of people. We've really enjoyed it. Uh, back to you to, to wrap up. Thank you very thank much. You. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you, Osborne Clark, Brian, Matthew, Caroline, and James. Um, absolutely wonderful. What we will do um, is we will take this recording, we'll edit it and get all the information um, dumped down to a, a small presentation that we'll be able to send out. And I'll also add in, uh, I see uh, Brian, you put out that link. I'll put that in a follow-up email 
but again, just thank you everyone for joining us. Um, and we'll be in touch about upcoming gatherings. Uh, again, James, Caroline, Matt, Brian, thank you so very much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks all. Pleasure. Absolute nice pleasure. Yep. All the best. Have good days. Bye for now. Cheers. Take care. Bye.